We don't like scarcity. We set out the concert, conquer scarcity with abundance. But since then, what we have shown is our inability to live with abundance. So we're on this path right now. We started with scarcity, we went to abundance. Within decades of creating abundance, we had led abundance into glut. And then from glut, we've gone into waste because more than around 40% of food just between retailers and ourselves as consumers is wasted. That's destroying the very forces that once gave us abundance. The next step after that is a return to scarcity. That's the path we're on. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, and if you want to learn more about the Island Press or their Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U, capital R, capital P. Our topic today is a new book from Island Press, The Grand Food Bargain and the Mindless Drive for More. Our guest is the author, Kevin Walker. Kevin is well positioned to talk about our food system. He grew up in farming and has seen almost every facet of agriculture firsthand, working in agribusiness at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, overseas with international nonprofits, and as a professor at Michigan State University. He has served on committees with the National Academies of Medicine and National Research Council, and is a consultant to foreign governments and the World Trade Organization. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to dive right into the grand food bargain, but first, let's talk a little bit about your journey from growing up in farming to writing a book critiquing our modern food system. So, so where did you grow up and what experiences led you to know and understand our food system so deeply? Well, I grew up in the Wasatch Valleys in Utah, and it was a family farm that had uh, crops and uh, livestock, cattle, and we also had fruit orchards. And part of the advantage of growing up on a farm like that is although we were fairly mechanized, we had a lot of things to do, a lot of manual labor. That gave me a lot of time just to observe the interaction between living on a farm and interfacing with nature and the environment. And from that, it seems like no matter what I have done, I've been linked in one way or the other with food. And so along the way, I picked up some very valuable experiences from my travels because I worked overseas for many years. I remember, for example, uh, visiting a banana plantation. And on this banana plantation, the bananas would be harvested and brought in to a central part of the entire plantation, and there they were processed. And as I watched what they were doing along the way, they would call out the manager of the plantation said up to 25% of the bananas because they were either too big or had too much of a curve or had superficial scarring on them. And these pounds of mountains of bananas would build up around it. And you would begin to ask the question, well, what happens? Is this what food is all about? And so I've had a lot of those experiences from there, uh, from working in, in USDA and taking on some hot plate issues a disease that the public knows as mad cow disease. Our group was charged with putting together an assessment as to what that would mean if it were to come to the United States. From coming back into the university and see the challenges associated with taking on 
difficult issues. So along the way, I just started asking myself, where is this taking us in terms of this relentless drive for more food? What does it mean when we just expect more and more food and we never question where it comes from? I had a, a boss at Michigan State University who was the dean. I reported directly to him. And in conversations and sharing of experiences, he one day challenged me and said, you know, there's a story of food that needs to be told. And I would hope and encourage that you would do it. My first reaction was, well, I'm not convinced myself, but the more I got into it, the more I could see that there really was a story, that our relationship to food is far more important, and that food is more than what we put into our mouths. Food changes us. So, Kevin, when did you grow up on the family farm? What time frame was this? I was born on that farm, and I lived on that farm up until about the mid, my mid-20s. This was in the 1970s, 1980s? This was in the 19, late 1950s and 1960s up through the 19, mid-1970s. So the farm was already, you said, as you said, fairly mechanized. So first, we should probably, you should probably define the grand food bargain, and then let's talk about how it started. What are the roots of the grand food bargain? Okay. So the short answer is that the grand food bargain deals with our expectations that food is readily available. And it's living as if food will, will never run out. And maybe a, a story to help bring this in is I remember going into a grocery store, having lived abroad for many years, and feeling this sense of enormity looking at some 50,000 products at that time on neatly arranged shelves and display cases. And it's not that there were no stores overseas, but what we accomplished in the U.S., was take food to a whole new level of abundance. And I knew that within minutes of this store, there were three other stores, not to mention any number of fast food and full service restaurants. So this is the grand food bargain, which in our everyday life has come to mean that we're surrounded by food and food answers to us. How we got there to this point, a whole lot had to happen. Because when the nation started, when we declared our independence, the thought was that America was to be a nation of farmers. Instead, what happened was a new class of society emerged, known as consumers, who no longer had responsibility to produce their own food. And what they wanted was more food for less effort. And those producing and providing the food structured their farms and their businesses to deliver greater volume. And by volume, I mean more calories in exchange for greater profits. So what we have for the first time in history is two separate ways of relating to food that end up becoming these dueling relationships to food that were far different from when our ancestors lived as hunters or gatherers or early farmers. Now the engine that powers the grand food bargain and the five forces that fuel it, we know today as the modern food system. And what resulted were these unprecedented benefits. But as is the case with many bargains, this one, this grand food bargain, brought with it unwanted consequences. So the farm that I grew up on was somewhat in that transition between when farms were still defined around family enterprises and family labor, and when farms became much more larger and much more mechanized and much more focused on turning out more and more calories. So we talk about the unprecedented benefits. And I think a lot of people would look at that modern system and that abundance and say, 
we don't have much hunger in the well that's not an accurate statement but for the average citizen hunger is not a, such a big problem food is easily available it doesn't consume a lot of time and on, actually it has come to consume less and less of the family budget over time so i think a lot of people would look at our current system and say you know this is just an overwhelming success so why don't you talk a little bit about what we gave up in the bargain okay and i would agree with what you're saying i mean it it brought food to a level that not even kings and queens of old could have ever anticipated. And it freed us up to do whatever we wanted from artists to athletes. And we could do whatever we, we wanted, including if we wanted to load up the fridge with food and throw half of it away two weeks later, we could. There were also consequences, and the most visible ones include poor health, uh, wasted resources, and a weakened, more vulnerable environment. So, for example... If we compare ourselves to our peer countries, we are near the top in terms of overall wealth and at the bottom in terms of health. We eat more food, we spend less on food, but we also spend more on health care. We are dead last when it comes to chronic food-related diseases like obesity and diabetes and heart disease. And if we look at the food system that powers the grand food bargain, and some of its more visible consequences, the food system is now a primary contributor of pollutants in streams and waters, lakes and oceans, and heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere. It relies heavily on fossil energy. And beyond that, there are other consequences that we don't see as often but are equally important. A lot of that change that's occurred over history, some of it has been driven by policy, and some of it has just been driven by the economy and technological advances. Are there any like major things that have occurred in the past, major events, decisions that were made by government, for example, that have really exacerbated the grand food bargain? There have been lots. And part of what you're getting at is what I call the forces that fuel the food system, which is the engine behind the grand food bargain. And as it relates to government, yes, there has. Government is one of those forces, and government has had an oversized role, both for good and for unwanted consequences in what we have. And one of those is for almost two and a half centuries, and this was before we declared our independence, the role of government within our food production was next to nothing, which is really quite interesting when you think about it, because that was a time when many of our elected officials came from agricultural backgrounds. We depended on agriculture for our national growth, and we were governed by people who understand all of this very well. But in the 1930s, uh, we began to see the onset of permanent farm legislation. And we began to operate under the idea that farm needed to have farming and food needed to have ongoing support. And so we set up what we know today as the Farm Bill as permanent legislation, meaning that it's revisited every five years. And if we don't revisit it, it reverts back to what it was in the 1930s. And that's our decision to make. So that has been one of the biggest ones. There have been other things along the way too, and that relates to our environment and how we handle that. One of them is, is the Clean Water Act, which was a decision that, that we wanted to keep our riverways and our streams clean and, and clear. But we also exempted farming to a large extent as to how that worked. Another one was the renewable fuel standard. So every time we go to the gas pump, uh, we are paying to encourage farmers to grow corn, which is then made into ethanol as part of this effort at the time it was said to gain energy independence. So those are three examples right there, Mike. 
Bill Pollan in his book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, uh, talks a lot about farm policy, particularly in the, the 1970s and, and the unintended consequences. So what's the solution? So what what is the alternative to the modern food system? And how do you structure that alternative in a way that's going to maintain a lot of the benefits of the modern food system that people like, but move us in a different direction? Well, I think the challenge is there are other ways of producing food that we know that, that are out there. The challenge there is they constitute a very small portion of total food production. And in the meantime, what we have and what exists is taking up all of our resources, all of the air in the room, if you will, in order to keep moving along. Now, part about the food system that we often forget about is that the food system exists to serve us. And we are the executive producers of that system. So if the food system were a movie, we're the ones who underwrite that movie. We're also the main player in that food system. So we've tended to look at our role as things, as food has become more convenient, as access has become more convenient. As we go into a store, a restaurant, we order off of a menu or put food in our carts, and that's it. So if we are going to change that, the biggest thing that, that is going to have to happen is we are going to have to change our approach and see ourselves in another light. So the biggest hurdle, if we don't like what is happening now, is accepting that there is a problem and that the threats or consequences posed by that problem have become unacceptable. When we get to that point, I think more than half the battle is over because that's where the change begins to occur. So we don't like scarcity. We set out to conquer scarcity with abundance. But since then, what we have shown is our inability to live with abundance. So we're on this path right now. We started with scarcity. We went to abundance. Within decades of creating abundance, we had led abundance into glut. And then from glut, we've gone into waste because more than around 40% of food just between retailers and ourselves as consumers is wasted. That's destroying the very forces that once gave us abundance. The next step after that is a return to scarcity. That's the path we're on. So when we decide that this path we're on is unacceptable, things will begin to change. And we see evidence of that happening now, and not just in food, but in other things. We almost overnight decided we would not get on Boeing 737 MAX airplanes. But on the other side, we're still grappling somewhat with global warming and what to do. But there are things that are happening now within the system that are encouraging and things that are suggesting that there, there are things that we can do. And on a policy side, you know, the farm bill is every five years. And I think a lot of people, there will be folks who question the food system. And, and I think there already folks are. Those folks are shopping at, tending to shop a little bit more at places like Whole Foods or farmers markets or local food systems. You see it in the in the restaurant industry, right? The hot new places are the folk, the restaurants that tell you where the local food came from, and they're working with their local farmers. Some of the hotter new restaurants have foragers who find the ingredients at the local level that the restaurants are using. But it seems to me like that's a small fraction. And it's and I wonder how the average person, the person who is on a fixed income, a person who is their food budget isn't as much of their budget, but they still don't have extra money to spend on food. Those folks, how are they going to be moved in a different direction unless we make significant policy changes? But that policy will always start with ourselves and what we want to do. because. 
especially nowadays, the federal government doesn't lead, it follows. And that's where the policies that most affect agriculture are parked at. And I think as people begin to see, and I think we are seeing somewhat of this, some of the consequences in terms of poor health, we're beginning to question, well, what we can do and what can happen. The food system is an interesting thing because what it does for the average person is it says, well, you know, there are three variables that are out there. One, you can have convenience. One, you can have price in terms of low price. And then one, you can have availability. And so what they do is make it easy to get any two or three of those benefits. And so and most of what it offers are the vast majority that it offers are price and convenience. But what it does is it loads up those foods with lots of calories because that's what the system does. That's the relationship that the modern food system is built around. It is the delivery of calories and to have consumers monetize those calories into money. It's not built around the idea of nutrition. If you're on a fixed budget and nutrition is the most important thing that on your radar that you see that you want, it can be done. But what it means often is focusing your efforts in the produce section on fresh fruits and vegetables and staying away from parts of the supermarket that really cater to convenience, and which is what we do in our household. So most of what we spend for is within the produce section, knowing that that's going to take more time in terms of the preparation because those conveniences are not built in, but also believing that at the end of the day, we end up with better food in terms of better health. And so you see this kind of, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you see this kind of quiet revolution happening. You see people waking up to this change or waking up to this problem and, and then changing their behaviors. Where does that go? How, how does that escalate? And what does the food system look like in a perfect world? What's the food system look like in 20 or 30 years? Where it goes is we set out to build a food system originally, the grand food bargain, to deliver abundance. And we got it. We got what we wanted. So if we look down the road, the question comes up, is what we want are calories or is it better nutrition? So I always believe that form, that function follows what we want. And so our challenge is to decide, do we want a food system that delivers us nu nutrition or do we want a food system that delivers us abundance? And once we've made that decision, then the rest of the forces that are out there begin to be more active. Because part of what happens is that from our standpoint as consumers, what we look at is where food comes from, where we get our food. And where we get our food are from restaurants and supermarkets. We don't look at the significance of food in terms of how it is changing us. And so what we end up doing is just going to the store, picking up what we want. We bring it back and we consume it and then we just repeat the cycle. Until we can begin to see that more and more of the consequences that are happening are a result of our actions, we'll continue in this until external forces cause us to operate differently. So for our average listener, what besides making better food choices and choosing food based on nutrition rather than convenience and affordability, what other actions can those folks take who, who really care deeply and want to have a bigger impact beyond their own personal um, buying habits. Are there any, any suggestions? Yes. The subtitle of the book is The Mindless Drive for More, and the opposite of mindless is mindfulness. And the way to look at mindfulness is our awareness. 
So there are some simple things that we can begin to do now to help. First is, with awareness, come stop taking food for granted. Start being aware of what we are doing. That, one of those ways, is, is stop wasting food. You know, I mentioned that we waste up to 40% of food is never eaten. The other one is to recognize the blessings of food that are out there. If you think about this, Mike, we're in a unique moment in time. I mean, for more than 2 million years, food scarcity and food and scarcity went hand in hand. It was just a reality of life. And it's only within the last less than 150 years that we've had all of this food available to us with very little effort. That's the blessings of food. But sometimes the blessings of food become the burden of food. And the burden of food comes about when it's six o'clock at night, the kids have not been fed, we're tired from working, where's the nearest fast food restaurant we can go? Or we have other things, but we just don't want to take time to food. So there's an irony in terms of we've had the blessings of food have been turned into the burden of food. The other thing that all of us would do well to remember is to acknowledge that individual actions always become shared outcomes. Uh, the food system made it easy. If the food system promoted this idea that what I do is just for me, has no impact on others. Uh, that's never the case. Uh, the food system came about because of individual actions and a concerted vision to do something about it. So individual actions still matter, and what you do still matters. The other thing is look more closely at how we eliminate sugars, fats, oils, and salts in our diet. In some ways, we're already doing this. If you look at sugary soda beverage sales year over year for the last decade, they've been trending down. Part of the reason why they've been trending down is because uh, we see the effects of overweight and what it's doing with us. So those are some of the that would fit into the awareness category. It can be done very easily. There's things we can do if we want to look at the role of the food system and what we want. Now, I have found, for example, that just understanding how the food system works can be a great deterrent from keeping me away from too many calories and enjoying more nutrition. The other one is to recognize that the way the system is structured up right now, it counts heavily in our disinterest within how it operates in terms of the labeling and the regulations, which should make things clear, but in fact has not helped in terms of the average consumer to go in and say, this is what I'm getting. In terms of the resources that are being used and what it means, uh, we can also do more in terms of encouraging some better production practices at the farm level. Because there are things that some farmers do, but not mainstream or not all farmers do in terms of uh, protecting our streams and waterways. And then there are more in-depth types of things that we can get into within each one of these. So if you want to know more and you want to understand our food system and understand its impacts on our society, on our health, on our environment, you should read Kevin's book, The Grand Food Bargain and the Mindless Drive for More, available from Island Press. It's a great book. Um, I'm about halfway through it. A fascinating read. And uh, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you for the book. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure to be with you. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on Infinite Earth Radio.
Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.